So, who are these elites you're talking about? And isn't your theory in danger of being a little bit elitist itself? Absent from it are the vast majority of the people of the country. Do they not have agency? In a lot of countries, the agency is often indirect by the people that represent them, one way or another, <coughs> direct groups. While I talk about the elites, it's actually those people with power and influence, and in some countries, this can be a narrow group. In other countries, it's going to be a border group. But it's not just the political class on its own, it's the connected businesses. It's the business that also fires the politics. It's often the military as well. It can be civil society as well. It can be public intellectuals. And of course, what we would like to see is to have a broader group of people to have more agency. But in my book, I have to come to the conclusion progress is possible, even if the elite is actually still quite narrow. You don't, you don't have to have all these things perfectly in place in terms of broad representation, broad inclusion, before the beginning of takeoff can happen. Now, I think your book is interesting because, in essence, you say there is no receipt for growth and development. You don't say you need to be a democracy or you need to be an autocracy. You don't say you need to be a perfect Chicago school for market economics. You need to have perfect institutions. You need to have state planning. You kind of say each country should cut its policy according to its cloth. In one section of the book, which is quite an entertaining and possibly a controversial section of the book, you take him at some of the people who perhaps have had what you call anyway the silver bullet theory of development, whether it is the likes of Jeffrey Such, who in your sort of characterization is asking for much more aid, or people like Darren Smoglu and James Robinson who are asking for better institutions. First of all, what's wrong with those theories? Actually, there's a lot of it right with what they say. If I start with why nations fail, during Smoglu and James Robertson, of course it would be great if we have inclusive institutions. And in fact, their theory is a lot to do with trying to say, look, if we want to have continued growth and keep on going, we probably need at some point this kind of inclusive institution. What I don't like sometimes about the way their theories get interpreted is that we need perfection before we can start. If we have to wait until they're perfect institution, nothing will happen. At the same time, when we look around the world, China and a few, for example, read John Jong Ang's book, How China Escaped the Poverty Trap. She strongly argues that actually the institutions in China in 1979, they were pretty messy and pretty weak. You know, they came out of conflict. They came out of the cultural revolutions, so it's not in that in itself is wrong, but to us that you have to have it sorted before you can continue is not very helpful. Just such, you know, there's a kind of things there, but the way it sometimes gets interpreted, gained, and maybe sometimes he alludes too much to it, is that aid can solve it all. Aid has become very a small part of the development in general. I, for most countries in the world, has actually not been a big force for change. I will immediately qualify this at two countries that I named in my book. 
Ghana and Bangladesh. Very interestingly, these were countries that given their local circumstances and the way they could use if they could use it well. But to simply say every country in the world will develop thanks to a massive amount of aid. I don't think it's a very good idea, you know. You need to find the best way that it can work in your own context. So, if there is no silver bullet, this is essentially an iterative process. It's then shopping cursing the river by filling the stones. I mean, to use your analogy or to stretch it a bit, what you're saying is that the elite must have decided that they're going to cross the river in the first place, and then they work out how to do it by trial and error. Is it right? And can you give us an example of a country that you think has taken that approach? China, of course, itself did it, but you could argue that, say a country like Indonesia from the 1970s has involved kind of searching to reduce the power of incumbent elites and actually getting more and more new entrants to be allowed in the elite in businesses, you know, In the 1970s, was by allowing foreign direct investments coming. In 1970s, what continued in the 1990s, of course, and we had the Asian crisis. Actually, they renewed in their political system. They are now far more democratic now than they were before 1997. So they allow to actually find a way that works for them. So I think an essential part of it is to find a way that you can correct your errors and use whatever is at hand to actually improve and change it. It's actually quite an interesting thing. On Indonesia, for example, they use the IMF of all institutions very effectively as part of that learning and correction. Now, if your politics is so stuck that actually adjusting your economy and doing some of the bit more market-oriented measures that you need to take, If it's so stuck that politics doesn't allow you to do it, the IMF can be really useful. They can actually help you to do the springing resource, and if necessary, you blame them if it grows wrong. And I think Indonesia played that game very cleverly. Also, that situation is very different from then shopping, but that is actually finding ways to progress and make progress in general.